You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Ain't no sense in going home. Ain't no sense in going home. Jody's got her girl and gone. Jody's got your girl and gone. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Ain't no sense in feeling blue. Jody got your sister too. Jody got your sister too. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Break it on down. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Okay, folks, you know what that means. That is everybody loves the cadence calls, and it's time now for the veterans story, and we've got Pete Mecca on the phone with us, and he's the host of the veteran story and he's got well like like uh pete and i've talked i don't believe i've ever met a veteran that has one story they all have more like 100 or 1000 maybe but i don't know of any veteran that has one story but we are delighted to have this show on the air and uh we we've had some comments on it people that uh are veterans they uh they love the idea of a veteran show, and that's what we give them, and that's that's what we try to do here with all of our shows, give people what they want and uh, go from there. So that's exactly what we're doing, and uh, Pete, welcome again to America's Web Radio. Well, thank you, David. Uh, here we go, folks. This is Pete Mecca. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host for a veteran story. My guest today was Andy Negra. Andy is a combat veteran of World War II. He traveled on half-track all the way across Europe. Uh, he is having technical difficulties from his home today trying to get through the conference. So I will go ahead and start telling you his story, and hopefully Andy can get through. Uh, he's way up there in the North Georgia mountains, so that may be the problem right there. But we will see. All right. I first met Andy, oh, about a year ago. Uh, he just turned 96 years old. He's sharp as a tack. But one of the surprising things when I asked him, like I do all veterans, uh, Andy, uh, where were you born and raised? And Andy said, well, Pete, that's difficult to answer. And that sort of threw me. So I asked Andy, I said, well, can you explain that to me, Andy? Give me some kind of a brief summary of your childhood. He said, well, Pete, we didn't have a home. We traveled from one place to another until 1930. Dad was a coal miner. Then America, but America then was actually looking for coal miners. Recruiters visited various uh, counties to recruit miners. I'm assuming Dad was one of those guys. You have to remember now, this is during the Great Depression. I said, what about a permanent home, Andy? He said, well, we never had one. We traveled all the time. But in 1930, we finally settled in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. Until that time, we just lived in a car. In Brownsville, PA, it was a duplex with a kitchen, two bedrooms upstairs, outside toilets, and nothing but a dirt road out front. 
I always said that we had our own United Nations. People from Italy, the Philippines, Poland, African Americans, Russians. We lived side by side in a beautiful area. It wasn't much. Everyone was poor. But we all got along. The Italians were always yelling at each other, but that's Italians. Being Italian, I can verify that. That my family reunions, Italians do like to talk loudly. That's just the way we are. I asked Andy about the, uh, the Great Depression. He said, I remember during the Depression, we were in a large tent. Dad was there, and I guess we were looking for soup kitchens or something to eat. But I remember holding onto his leg, all four of us around his body. We traveled a lot, cousin to cousin. My mother's sisters were in western Pennsylvania, had homes, so we'd go there and spend some time until finally settling down in Brownsville. I said, well, what about the car? He said, well, actually we didn't have a car, and I don't remember how we got around. I guess we had friends who took us around. Dad spoke broken English. My mother was good with English, but her mom never spoke a word of English. I remember all that. But once in Brownville, my life really got started. So I asked him about his education. He said, I was put in a school. My sister took me to school every day. And I recall at six years of age telling my sister and brothers, I am going to finish high school. Of the four siblings, I'm the only one to finish high school. I was about a C-plus student, just an average kid, but I excelled in basketball and football. I was good enough to play semi-pro, but two weeks after my July 1943 graduation, I was on my way to Fort Bragg, North Carolina for basic training. Uncle Sam drafted me right after high school. Okay, I asked him about his basic training, what it was like to be away from home, to be in the military. He said, well, I remember getting on a train heading for Fort Bragg. The sergeant said, forget your name. You no longer have a name. You're a number. And I always remember that number. We got off the train and started marching. But some guy was in trouble. The sergeant kept yelling, Hey, you, in back. Get in step. Left, right, left, right. And I kept thinking, some dumb guy didn't know his left from his right. Then a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, you, left, right, left, right. Well, that dumb guy was me. I wasn't paying attention and marching at my own pace. And actually being athletic, basic training wasn't much of a challenge. He said, not at all. I asked about his training. He said, well, I was a typist. I said, really? He said, yeah, basic training lasts about six or eight weeks. I could type 70 words a minute on the manual typewriter, so the Army made me a clerk typist. 
I never saw a typewriter after that. My next assignment was Fort Meade, Maryland. And there my life really changed. I was walking through an area and heard music. So I went into this dance hall. I looked across the floor and saw this beautiful young girl. I walked over and asked her to dance. She looked at me, smiled, and said yes. The first song only lasted about 10 seconds, but she stayed with me for a second dance. The song we danced to, People Will Say We're In Love, was from the stage show Oklahoma. During that dance, I told her, this is going to be our dance for the rest of our lives. Her name was Viola. I knew within 15 minutes, and it was that quick, that Viola was going to be my girl. From then on, as long as I stayed in Fort Meade, I did a lot of things against Army regulations. Breaking the rules, for one thing. See, the U.S. girls came up, to, U.S.O. girls came up from Washington, D.C. to dance with the soldiers. Then they were burst, uh, bust back to D.C. Well, we weren't supposed to visit the girls, and the girls were told to not let us visit them because nobody knew what would happen to these soldiers. Now, you have to realize a lot of boys were going overseas at that time, and a lot of our boys didn't come back. So a lot of girls were uh, reluctant get involved. Uh, Pete, there, uh, there is your uh, guest, Pete. Oh, Andy, you with me? Yeah, I finally got in on you, Pete. Thank well, you. That's good, Andy. Um, I'm glad you finally joined us. I was telling your story to our listeners. Uh, your birthday, you just celebrated uh, how many years on this earth? 96. May the 28th, I was 96, Pete. 96 years old and still a heck of a guy. You still sound strong. You feeling okay these days, Andy? Everything is fine with me, Pete. Only, uh -huh. un uh, only unfortunate thing is uh, with this virus going around, I can't go out and play golf. I understand that. You, you told me about golf. You shoot your age. Is that correct? Yes, I did down in Florida last year with my son. He invited me down in at Thanksgiving, and that's when I did. All right, it, it was, let me tell you how far I got with your story, Andy. I'm down to uh, uh, where I was telling the listeners about you meeting Viola. And uh, I, I know that you, I got down to where you were visiting her, you were breaking Army regulations, and at 19 years of age, the Army didn't tell you what to do. Is that correct? That's correct. I met her at Fort Bragg, uh, Fort uh, Meade, uh, Pete. I don't know if you mentioned that or not, but I met her at Fort Meade, and I was walking along, and I listened to this music. I heard music, and I love music, so I went into the hall, glanced over into the hall where the dancing was, and I seen this beautiful brunette. Oh, my golly, she was beautiful, and I walked over to her and asked her to dance, and she says, uh, okay. And we got on the dance floor, and that particular song they were playing lasted about, oh, 15 seconds. And I asked her if you'd like to go into the second dance. And she said yes. 
And uh, Second Dance, believe it or not, Pete, was called People Will Say We're in Love out of the stage show Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And uh, while, while dancing, we had a lot of conversation. I found out her birthday was the same as mine. Oh. Uh, she she was 17 years old and just as beautiful as any any woman could ever be. And uh, from then on, uh, she told me how it goes. Uh, they were bussed out from uh, uh, Washington, D.C. to dance the, with the soldiers. They were told not to get too friendly with them. And uh, as I always like to say that uh, you didn't tell a 19-year-old what he could do and what he couldn't do as far as girls are concerned. So I uh, visited her parents, met her, not her parents, but her grandmother and grandfather, which were where she was staying at while working for the Selective Service. Uh-huh. Okay. So, I have seen but, a, a photo of Viola when she was 17 or 18 years old. Uh, absolutely gorgeous lady. Uh, and you were a very lucky man. I was blessed, Pete. I was <laughs> really blessed. Okay, now yeah. after Fort Meade, uh, you were transferred to Camp Shanks, is that right? That's correct, up in uh, New York. Okay. And, got okay. On, and, and I got on a boat in camp uh, in uh, New York City. Okay. And, and uh, once I got on the boat... Uh, it was quite interesting. They gave you this great big bag of your clothes, your rifles, your guns, and everything, and you got to carry it on your back. And I tell you, Pete, it was big and heavy. But uh, <laughs> once we entered the ship, and then once we got in onto the ship, uh, there were hammocks down below. And hammocks, I think, were about six foot high. So I don't remember what bunk I got, but it was... Really, really high. So it was it, it was quite an experience for me. For Andy, we're going to talk about the voyage. We're going to talk about the voyage overseas after the break. We got to take a break right now, but we'll be right back. So hang on with me, Andy. Okay. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. We've got uh, veteran story in progress, and uh, don't forget that at one o'clock we have. Special agent in charge, and that's Andy Bostic, and he has some uh, news about what's going on, and it's going to be quite interesting. And we have a number of great stories. This show is brought to you by the Georgia Veterans Military Hall of Fame, uh, and it is fantastic. Uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, downtown Atlanta. Also, want to remind you that you can go to the Johns Creek. Healing Wall, which is a 50% replica of the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. And uh, it's found its permanent home. It traveled all over the United States, bringing healing to many, many folks and families throughout the United States. And now it's permanently in Johns Creek, Georgia. Also want to remind you that we have... Uh, Peachtree Corners has a memorial to uh, veterans of Vietnam. So we, we're cornering the market sort of up here in uh, North Georgia for 
and saluting all of our veterans. Want to remind you too, come Friday, it's Red Shirt Friday. You wear a red shirt, and that's in honor of our first responder and all of our military. So we want to say thank you to the military as always. Hope that everybody has a great weekend, 4th of July. And remember to go up to a cop, go up to one of our first responders and say thank you. Two little words can mean so much. Right now we're going to get back to uh, Pete and his guest Andy talking about World War II. And back to you, Pete. Okay, uh, thank you, sir. And Andy, you still with me? I'm still with you, Pete. Okay, now we are boarding that boat headed to war, and you said that once you were at sea, you went topside and said goodbye to the Statue of Liberty. That's correct. As we went past the Statue of Liberty, uh, I went out by and looked at it. Matter of fact, that was the first time I ever saw it, Pete, because... uh, being in Pennsylvania, you didn't get out and saw too much stuff uh, other than the local small-town atmosphere, so that's where we was. Well, we got on the boat, and about five days out, Pete, uh, I, several of us GIs got together on the deck, and we started showing pictures of our girlfriends. So I pulled mine out, and then went around to about the fourth or fifth guy. And the guy says, hey, wait a minute. And he reached in his wallet, reached for his wallet, pulled it out, picked out, pulled out the same picture that I had. And that kind of <laughs> disturbed me no end, but that, that was all right. She show, he showed the picture when it was identical, the same picture as I had. So many years later in our marriage, Pete, I said to her, why did you give pictures of yourself to... Uh, these other guys and she says well to be honest with you we did not know who was coming back and that's yeah. why they said, said gave pictures to several GIs well you know a lot was, of those, those men kept some boys alive during that war ain't it the truth that's for sure Pete so, okay. so that uh, was on, it yeah on your voyage across uh I think I'd be a little bit upset, too, if somebody got pulled out the picture of my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, after you uh, uh, set sail, you guys landed in Wales, is that correct? Barry Wales. Barry huh? Wales. It was, uh, I, I never did look it up on a map or so, Pete, but Barry Wales. And then I can remember going into a mess hall and talking to a guy, and this was also a little humorous, uh, Pete. Uh, we were talking, and he says, you from Pennsylvania? I says, why? He says, we in the South say you all. You turn around and say Yunzes. Yunz, when where Yunz gone, or something like that. It was our method of our speech, and that's the way we spoke at that time. And then, and then from there, I was assigned, uh, and finally I got assigned to a outfit, and it was the 128th Armored Field Artillery in the 6th Armored Division. And again, that was that was located in uh, Barry Wills. Yeah. So I went to basic training. I don't know if you want me to talk about that a little bit, Pete, but uh, we were located next to a women's anti-aircraft unit. It was up top of the hill. And everything was fine. We 
I met another guy there that was from my particular, that knew my wife's uh, wife. Matter of fact, uh, it, it, it was amazing. We were playing softball, and we got friendly and talked to him. His name was Guy Andes. I can still remember that. And he told me that his mother-in-law and my vice uh, uh, mother we went to high school together, so we got friendly and we became good buddies after that. But then sometime during the day, Pete, uh, the Germans uh, sent their bombers over uh, Cardiff, which wasn't too far away from Barry, and they were bombing, and these girls started shooting at them. Uh, it was midnight, not midnight, but mid-evening. And it was... <laughs> The funny thing there was, Pete, I was taking a bath in my helmet. You know, we didn't have showers or anything. And I had water in the helmet, and I was taking a, a bath uh, out of the helmet. And as soon as the shooting started, I grabbed my helmet and put it over top of my head and forgot there was water in it. So I soaked myself pretty good. So you had two baths. I, so I had two baths. <laughs> but it, it, it was quite an adventure there, Pete. Well, that's amazing. You're in Wales and run into a guy that his mother-in-law and your girlfriend went to high school together. That, that's that's a small world. A small world, too. And I, I don't know if I ever told... Well, that's okay. We haven't got to that point yet. So, but but that, was, that was the uh, interesting... We did a lot of things together, and we kind of enjoyed a lot of basic training. And I don't recall how long we were, but finally we got word that we're going to move out, and we did. I understand that you met some nice ladies there, and one of you wanted one of them wanted to marry you. Is that correct? Yes, and she was beautiful too, Pete. Uh, you meet a lot of girls in this thing like that uh, in, on trips like this, and uh, she was beautiful. And she lived in a town called Great Risington, and. Uh, there was a lot of interesting things I saw there, Pete. One of the ten, this particular town, Great Risington, had a walk-through uh, model of their town. So as you walk through, it, it, by uh, just just walking through it, Pete, uh, you can see the whole town at, right below you. And it was quite interesting. I never saw anything like that. I've seen models, but not not this size. And it was wow. part of the uh, part of a place to see. Okay, very good. And you uh, now from there you went to Southampton, England. That was your next right. port of call. And then At, tell us about July the eighteenth, nineteen forty-four. Okay, we we got uh, on our way there, Pete. Before we got started, they said you're going to get your big meal. So we got on a boat in Southampton to heading for Utah Beach. And they said, this is your best meal. Well, <laughs> I didn't eat much of it because I think it was lamb. And uh, that was, to me, <laughs> a, a, a fatty type of meat, and I didn't get to enjoy much of that. So we landed at uh, Utah Beach, and as we landed, uh, got out of the, uh, the landing craft in our half-tracks, uh, I heard my name called. And looking down on the ground was this guy that lived in the same area I did. His family and everybody lived about four houses from where I lived. 
His name was George Dankovich. He yelled, hey, Andy Negra. And I said, hey, George Dankovich, how are you? He said, we're fine. I never did see him after that. I don't know what happened to him. I, I hope he survived, but uh, he didn't. I assume he was in the guys that put the steel girdles down so the tanks and the half-tracks could land on. Wow. I have already told the uh, radio audience that you were trained as a typist, but you never saw a typewriter after basic, did you? <laughs> That's correct. That was funny. Uh, but, you know... Uh, I could do 75 words a minute on a manual typewriter, Pete. So I, I, I was pretty fast on a, yeah, on a typewriter. And uh, so they trained me for that. But when I got overseas and into combat, uh, I never saw a typewriter. never got into the headquarters battery and uh, became one of those uh, desk guys. Uh, I was always on the move and always uh, in, a, in sort of a, what I call action whether or not we were shooting or not. Yeah, you were assigned to a half-track. Uh, go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about a half-track. A half-track is a vehicle with threads on them. And uh, we, uh, and that was mean, our means of traveling through the whole war. And it was quite, uh, quite something. And uh, some of the half-tracks had wheels on them, some of them had ha- half-tracks on them. So... Uh, my thought on that was it was a way of riding. I wasn't in the infantry, which required them to walk most of the time. They rode a lot, too, on the tanks. But uh, we uh, we rode every place we went. Uh-huh. And what once kind of, we... Go ahead. What kind of armament did you have? What kind of weapons? I had a thirty caliber machine... Uh, not a machine gun. thirty caliber carbine. Okay. And you also manned the fifty caliber machine gun every once in a while. Well, I, uh, through my adventures, Pete, I had a lot of different things in, but I haven't got to that point yet. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the thing is, from Utah Beach, we went to uh, St. Merle, English in yeah, France. Tell us. And we were, we, we were there about two weeks. We were there about two weeks, Pat. Uh, that's where we're going to leave off, Andy. we got to take okay. another break, and when we get back, okay. we're going to talk about St. Mary Gleese, okay? Okay, fine, Pete. Okay, stand by. You're listening to America's Web Radio and the veteran's story. And it's always very unique and want to remind everybody with the how important our veterans are and our active duty and our future kids that will join and go into the military. If you have a grandson, granddaughter graduating, or if you're graduating from high school and listening or college, whatever your circumstance is, we recommend highly the military. It will give you a great career. It will also educate you, and it will train you for a profession if that's what you want. So don't overlook looking at the military as your option after you graduate from high school or from college. It is wonderful, and we'll be talking more about that. And we also want you to uh, do one other thing, and that's uh, check history. We are very anti Antifa. Uh, these are just a bunch of thugs and jerks, and they're supported by 
the wrong folks, to say the least. And uh, we'll be getting into that more and more, uh, talking about it with with our uh, agent in charge who was uh, spent many years in Moscow in the Homeland Security and uh, federal positions as we go through the day. And we uh, want to thank Pete and Andy. It's a very interesting story, and we don't want to ever ever overlook world war ii and we think it's appalling that many high school and junior high school history books now only dedicate a couple of two or three pages to world war ii and yet we all know how important and for andy to be telling his story that's even more important so what we're going to do is get back to andy and pete and learn more about what Pete did in the Battle of the Bulge and in World War II. So with that being said, I'm going to play uh, one quick ID, and then we're going to go back to uh, Pete and Andy. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay. Uh, tell me about St. Mary Gleese. Well... We had to get together, and uh, we took two weeks to get ourselves, get all our units organized and uh, planning for what we're going to do. And that was uh, just getting together, get the units together, know what we're going to do. And then we were, after two weeks, we turned around and took off. Uh, from there, we headed towards our destination. Uh, our destination was Brest, France. Uh, General Patton, or our General Grow is our uh, general. General Grow ordered us to, and Patton ordered General Grow to take Brest and Lorient. Brest was a uh, transport area. It was a port which, if we captured it, we had access from England directly to this port, to this port, and we could get our supplies and everything. Lorient was a submarine base, if I recall correctly. And uh, so he wanted both of them. So he had two particular divisions that he uh, not only got them together, but he, he set them up. One was the 6th Armored Division, which I was assigned, assigned to, and the 4th Armored Division was the other one. So we took off from St. Marie and we headed towards our destination. About Oh, I don't know how long afterwards, Pete. Not long afterwards, Pete, we uh, were in a column going along a road, going, heading heading towards the, to our goal, and uh, next thing you know, we're being strafed by, by five ME-109s. And naturally, we got out of our vehicles. I ran towards a... Uh, a well that was out in the field, and I ran out and got behind this well. The uh, five planes, they strafed us, and when it was over and they had left, uh, I don't know what damage they did to the other vehicles, but ours was, everything was okay with us. And I got up, and I looked at the well. The bullets had broken the, the log that held the rope that held the wood, went down to get the water. It was split in half. So that was my first 
combat experience. And uh, so I kind of thank God that uh, I was uh, not hit. Fortunately, I was behind a stone wall, and that helped me no end. Wow. So from then on, we got back into the into the uh, t- uh, the half track and moved on. We headed for uh, Brest, and the, this amazing thing, which even Patton praised, we went 240 miles in 10 days, which was an amazing because all of this was German occupied territory. We wow. headed for we headed for Brest. And Fourth Armored Division headed for uh, Lorient, and it was the Brest Peninsula. That's what the whole thing was called. Mm-hmm. And uh, once once we once we got there, uh, we had a, several special things that happened. Uh, we went through hedgerow country. We captured a general. This general had about 25,000 German soldiers in this particular area. As we went through them, uh, and I enjoy telling people that the 6th Armored Division and the 4th and any Armored Division, their main goal is to split the division, split the German uh, occupation wherever they are and whatever they are, and uh, move towards uh, our target. And there was 25,000 German soldiers in our particular area as we went through it. And Brest had another, uh, I think it was 40,000 people. So during this trip to Brest, there was a general, General Spang. And he was trying to get all of his soldiers into Brest and fight against us. However, he backed up into the 6th Armored Division. We captured him. And and that was it, unfortunately. And the twenty five thousand never did get into to Brest to defend the port of Brest. We got wow. to Brest. We got to Brest, Pete, and uh, uh, they told us we were supposed to take Brest. But we found out later that Brest had this forty thousand soldiers. Uh, twenty thousand were administrative type. Uh, cooks and what have you, and the other 25, uh, 20 was uh, uh, soldiers, actual soldiers. So we had one division and one division only, and no way in the world could we have ever taken that town. So we stayed so long, and then uh, we had to move on, and we moved down to take uh, Brest. Oh, let me finish on Brest. Brest, it took two and a half months after we left for the uh, for the army for us to take over the uh, the town of Brest, so yeah. that was a lot, a lot, a lot of soldiers were needed. From okay. there we moved on. To, uh, from there we moved down to Lorient to take over what the uh, Fourth Armored was ordered to continue on with their wherever they were supposed to go, and the Sixth took over there for a, sort of a. Uh, a inner 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 resting place till we got orders to move on, and that's where you uh, took your first duty inside a Sherman tank. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, awesome. As as I mentioned, I wasn't a clerk typist, which means that I did several other jobs. My first assignment was with the uh, survey group, which 
the survey group is the unit of uh, the 128th, which the reconnaissance guys would get the information from either the Piper Cubs and observing what's going on down below or guys on the ground. They would, in turn, report the information back to headquarters. Headquarters would notify us. We would know where the target is. We got the maps out, and we directed our uh, 18 tanks, 18105 uh, artillery in the, at the target. And that was our, our purpose. I had we I was working on the maps, parts of it, pulled the maps out, whatever I was told, which uh, which which map to pull out and give it to the uh, head of the unit, and he in turn would pass it on to the to the gun units. Right. And what did you do in a Sherman tank? Well, they they assigned me at Lorient. They assigned me to a tank, and I was never. Itself, Pete. And what they did was they put me in a tank, and I, uh, I naturally asked the tank sergeant, "What do you want me to do?" He says, "You're going to be a." So he, uh, a loader is the guy that puts the uh, shells together, puts it into the barrel, and he told me he said, "Don't never use your fist. I mean, no, don't never use your fingers to put the uh, artillery into the barrel." He says, use your fist. If you use your fingers, you're going to lose them. So I learned how to uh, push the shells into the barrel, and then naturally they shot the, the shell towards the target. We were at, at Another interesting part about that part, Pete, was uh, we, we were sprayed by Germans. They had s- sort of knew where we were at, and they were shooting at a anticipated uh, area. So after a little while, we just moved over a little bit, and they, they kept shooting where the tank used to be. But I was outside of the tank at the time, and then these anti-aircraft, the screaming memes were shooting at this tank, and naturally we got back into the tank, pulled the hatch down, and we were protected. Fortunately, nobody got hurt at that time. So we were there. Go ahead. Well, tell the listeners about the three cent piece. Very interesting. Well, we had left. Lorient was a sidetrack. We weren't supposed to go down there, but we did. So we were back on our main goals along the road into France, and about halfway halfway towards the center of France, and we stopped naturally. And all along the way, Pete, you're digging foxholes. You you move so fast that uh, many times I dug three foxholes just to protect myself. And we stopped at this one particular location, and it was evening, and we went into uh, uh, this house, and it was a little cold. So we turned around and tried to get the stove, pot stove, cleaned out so we could put a little fire into it to get warm. I looked down into the ashes and uh, saw this round object and took it out, cleaned it up, and it was an 1856, I think the year was, 1856 three-cent piece. I've never heard of a three-cent piece. And that's where I found that at, and I put it in my pocket. It is now in a safety deposit box here in uh, our bank. 
I wonder what that's worth today, Andy. I, I don't know, Pete. I've taken it. It's in good, in mint, mint condition. Once I cleaned it, stuck it, uh, cleaned it up. Looks good. It's worth something. I don't know what. You might but that, be a millionaire, that, <laughs> sir. Uh, you might be a millionaire and not know it. <laughs> I don't think it's worth that much. But anyhow, it'd be a good collector's item, and uh, my inheritance will get it. Whoever's getting it, the kids will get it. So. All right, Christmas Eve in Nancy, France. Tell us about that. Okay, we were in uh, Nancy, France, and uh, matter of fact, I, that's when I got a two-day pass to go in to see the town, and it was an interesting town, beautiful little town, big square, all of that goes with it, and it was uh, quite a quite a nice visit. Then word got out, Patton knew something was going on it. And so soon, next thing you know, we're on a move. And from back stories, as I look back into history, Patton had a feeling something was going on. And we moved out of France, and we headed for a town called Metz, Metz, France. And that, that town uh, was a, quite a, uh, a fortress for the, for the Germans, made of thing. And... Uh, the Allies had captured Metz. And when we got to Metz, which was Christmas Eve, and you heard of winners and everything during our war, uh, it was ice cold, sleet, rain, you name it, it was all there. When we got to Metz, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, all at once all these trucks came up. When we got Christmas dinner, Pete, I always was amazed that here we are with turkey, stuffings, gravy, uh, the you name it. It was on a regular, regular Christmas Eve uh, party, and that was one of the most amazing things. We had Christmas Eve. Next morning, we're heading towards Luxembourg. Now, we didn't know what was going on, so all we do is follow the orders that we're told to do. We got back into our half-tracks, headed north. And we headed north, uh, got to a Luxembourg. And naturally, as cold as it was, we got out of the half-tracks. And we had, it was a two-lane bowling alley. I can remember that just as if it happened yesterday. We got out, got into the bowling alley. I think, I don't know, we must have filled up the whole place with GIs getting out of the cold weather. And that's where I spent, that was Christmas Day. And let me describe a little bit of Pete. It was ice cold, sleet. Matter of fact, vehicles were bumper to bumper going north to to Luxembourg. Uh, travel was very, very difficult uh, because naturally the ground was soaking wet, sleet, like I say, rain, snow, rain, mud, and all of us were cold. Okay, and then you came along... Tell us about Bastogne and the Battle of the Bulge. All right. The next morning after we got into uh, Luxembourg, the next morning we headed into southern part of, uh, southern or northern part, I'm not sure exactly where we entered at the beat. But anyhow, we moved into Bastogne. Uh, I can remember going into a house that I think, 
three-quarters of the roof was gone, but at least it was a protection against the weather outside. And we got inside the uh, inside the house, and that's where we stayed uh, during most of the uh, time. The town was shot up. Uh, I'm just sorry that uh, this isn't live on video because I've got slides that shows all of this on these slides, and I make presentations every now and then to whoever asked, and uh, I was able to. So we stayed there, and uh, during my bastion, once again, I was called to go into a tank. And uh, so they put me on this tank. It was on the outskirts of Bastogne, and I can remember, and this, again, is something that I'll never forget, uh, around 12 o'clock midnight, uh, the sergeant of the tank says, Nobody say anything, don't talk, don't move, don't do nothing. Well, I can understand why. Outside of the tank, I heard German voices talking. And I says to myself, uh-oh. So anyhow, we were quiet. We didn't say anything, and I'll never understand why these Germans didn't make a better uh, effort to see what's going on as far as the tank is concerned. But they left the next morning, and the next morning uh, they weren't there. We got out of the tank, and naturally we did what we were supposed to do. Right. And that was that was special. That was quite a quite an ordeal. I can imagine. Uh, we were going to take our last break here, and we'll be right back. Okay. Okay, Pete. You're listening to America's Web Radio and just one of our many great shows. want to remind you tomorrow morning is Doctor's Lounge. Find out what doctors are talking about in the hospitals when they go into the Doctor's Lounge. One of them is about socialism and how bad it is and how bad it would be if we went to a one-payer system in the United States. Look at Canada. Look at England. Why do Canadians come south to get their medical care? Find out tomorrow on The Doctor's Lounge here on America's Web Radio. We've also got Agent in Charge today at 1 o'clock. And you can go to our website and go back and listen to so many great shows. Yesterday, On Point, or Locked and Loaded, and just to name a few. And we do, as many of you know, the only land surveying show in the country and... Tomorrow we have Let's Talk Venezuelan, talking about the comparison of what happened in Venezuela to what's happening right now in the United States. And we do not want to be taken over by the communists. We don't want to be taken over by the socialists. And uh, it's happening, folks. Get your head together and get prepared because it is coming directly to you and into our streets in the very near future. So get ready for it. And um, we'll be back right after this with more of the veteran story. Pete interviewing Andy, a, a World War II veteran. And my hat's off. I salute him and uh, thank him for his service in World War II. We'll be back right after a message from John Bryan. Since the first squabble between Cain and Abel, two biblical brothers, there's been tension which leads to fighting. It's a cruel contest of the wills, usually produced by pride. But most fighting brings only further frustration. 
The first known gladiatorial contest took place in Rome in 264 B.C., featuring three pairs of armed fighters. The last historical clash was supposedly when Constantine abolished the gladiator shows in A.D. 325. However, fighting among families, nations, employers, and persons has never ceased. The Bible tells us to bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do we do this? No. Must we do this? Yes. Our lack of love and our fear of failure leads us to fight for our rights. But the truth is that we have to surrender our rights to Christ, who gave his life to replace our strife. This is John Bryan bringing you today's key word. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, we're back with Andy Negra, World War II combat veteran. Andy, uh, tell us about this sad part, the concentration camp at Buchenwald. Once we, uh, once we pushed the Germans out of Bastogne, naturally we're heading for the rest wherever we, we were going to go. Being 19 years old, Pete, and being what rank I had, it didn't. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going on. Otherwise, we just were did what we were told. After we left Bastogne, we headed again. Uh, it was uh, towards our target. We got into Germany, and finally we uh, was going past this prison camp. I, I did, at that time, I did not know it was Buchenwald, but anyhow, we, we went past it. I noticed the high fence. It was about 30 feet high, uh, and uh Prisoners walking in, walking inside of it. Uh, didn't get much of a description because we didn't slow down. We kept going to where we were supposed to. I found out later, and naturally history afterwards, that it was Buchenwald. It was, I think, after Auschwitz. Uh, this was the second worst uh, camp that the Germans had. Uh, from what I gather... It was really, really bad. Again, I should have slides on it when I show my presentation. And uh, the, uh, the some of the guys that were in the outfit did get a chance to go in and see the bodies, the ovens, and, and what have you. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go in, uh, being the uh, one of the privates. And I think I was a private at the time or, or a corporal. But anyhow, I didn't get a chance to go into it, so I, well, I'm, I'm, that may I'm, be a good thing, Andy. Sir, that that may be a good thing that you didn't see the horrors of Buchenwald. Right, right, okay. exactly tell, right. Uh, yeah, tell us about seeing uh, General George Patton. All right, but first, let me tell you first the end of the to end the thing. Uh, we headed for a town called Rocklitz, German, okay. and then we were, and that's on the Maldi River. And we we were stopped there because they said the uh, the Russians will meet us 
at that particular point. And when we got there, uh, naturally we had a stop. Uh, I found out later, Pete, that one of the another guy from my hometown where I was at uh, was not too far away, and he visited me, and we had a couple days together after that. Then talking about Patton, we were shelling a town in France. I can clearly remember, and I could clearly see him. He had his binoculars on. He had his two pearl guns on. He had his leggings on. He spick and span. But uh, naturally, I wasn't impressed because I didn't know it was Patton. Uh, I didn't know anything about him. I, all I knew was that uh, it was this dressed-up guy watching us shelling uh, a town in, in France. So I found out more about him, and I've read a lot about him, and I got books on him. So the thing is, is uh, it was a, quite a thing to say that I saw him and briefly didn't get to talk to him. I would say he was about oh, 10 feet away from me, Pete, when I saw him. Wow. So it was quite, quite, quite an honor to talk about him, but uh, unfortunately I didn't get to see or meet him or shake his hand. Steve, two questions. Okay, uh, and, and about that time the war was... You got word that it was over, and you guys really didn't celebrate too much. It was like, okay, it's over, right? Well, the point to discharge soldiers, you had to have enough points. I believe 85 was the going home point. So I found out, naturally, the 2nd Armored Division, the 128th Field Artillery, was an old, old outfit out of Albany, Missouri. Most of them were post office guys and farmers and what have you so uh, they were okay to go I didn't have enough points so they transferred me to the second armor division now the second armor division went into Berlin uh, right after I left the uh, sixth armored uh, I went to the second and the second armored was assigned to Berlin as part of the four nations occupying Berlin uh, there was France, Great Britain, Russia, and the United States. And there I had one uh, uh, one one adventure, and that was a couple of the Russian soldiers strayed into our particular area, and I was told to take him back to into the Russian ter- territory. So uh, I went into uh, my my language at the as a youth was Russian and uh, we went into this officer's tent told him who I was saluted him told him here's his soldiers and we left it was uh, to me I wish I could remember more about my visit what I said to him and whatever but he saluted back and uh, I left and left the two soldiers and went back to our particular area Okay. I, I, uh, it, it was it was scary. Well, I didn't have enough points with the second arm. Second arm had enough points, and they went on home. And then I was assigned to the thirty sixth Infantry Division, and that's the unit that I came back with. Okay, uh, but uh, tell us about the Russians and the American wristwatches. Yeah, these are stories that was being trans uh, circulated among the soldiers. They said these Russians wanted American watches. They really looked, and they paid high to get them. The guys would sell cheap watches at $125 or more. Well, 
one one story went around was that this one Russian had a, had uh, two or three watches in his hand, put them to his ear, shake it, and no ticky, and that's what he said, no ticky. So one of our GIs went up to him and wound it with the with his fingers and uh, put it to the Russian's ears, and he heard the tick, and he said, "Good." <laughs> But they, they, he was throwing them away, actually. No ticky, so he didn't want it. It wasn't ticking. But he, he showed how to how to wind a, a wristwatch. That was funny. Uh, very good. Now, you went home with a 36, is that correct? That's correct. All right. And I and can... One of the first things you did, I believe, was go see Viola. And you asked this beautiful lady for her hand in marriage. And she said, I will marry you if you do what? I had to get a job, Pete. <laughs> and I can still remember where we were sitting. It was in Washington, D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue. And we were sitting in this restaurant. And I was, um, she was sitting right across from me. And I said, I'd like to marry you. I said, will you marry me? And she says, yes, I will, on one condition. She says, you get a job. <laughs> uh, she says, I got a job. Now, Vi worked for the Selective Service, which is another funny story, is that here she is working for Selective Service. She not only drafted me, but she married me. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, your uh, marriage lasted for 70 years and 10 months before Viola passed. That's correct, uh, and Andy, what a what a wonderful wonderful woman, Pete. There's so much I could talk to about, and I could talk forever about her. But uh, to this day, uh, she died February 27, 2017. So she's been dead three years, and she died of dementia, and she had dementia for ten years, oh. and ten years. And uh, <laughs> the worst thing that she disliked about. Uh, not being able to drive a car. She loved driving a car also. So uh, Dr. Doctor Cope says, nope, you can't drive. So, And that right. that went on for three years. She fought me for three years on that bit. During our marriage, Pete, we had three children uh, still alive. Okay, and Pete. one is uh, 72. The older boy is... Uh, Seventy, uh, it'll be seventy-one July the twelfth, and then the other one is. Uh, Pete, 65. we have to wrap it up. So, and I'm oh. the last. I'm the last of the Negra family, as far as the immediate family is concerned. Okay, Andy, I'm going to ask you a final question here. Do your pet squirrels still show up for lunch every day? They certainly do, Pete. They, they. As I'm in here in the kitchen now, and what they do is they jump on the rail. He sits, they sit on her two legs, hands folded in front of them like they're praying and looking into this window. When I, when I get up, I go to the door and uh, with a handful of peanuts, go out and give them the peanuts. And they know exactly where they go. One of them comes really Pete. underneath my hand when I put the peanuts down. Okay, I, I need to interrupt. And, uh, Pete, thank you very much. And, Andy, thank you for being on America's Web Radio today. Thank you very much, Pete. I need to interrupt. We've got to get out of here. We'll be back with another show right after this. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.